This is episode 237 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare history content, including documentary films, three-minute animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, and an entire library of digital downloads that coordinate with the show. Find out all of these benefits and join today at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi, I'm Elisa Tersini, a researcher of early modern food. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's that Shakespeare life with my friend Cassidy Cash. So if you were a sea dog, if you were called a sea dog, or at least the way that we know it today, you were contracted for this specific task from Elizabeth, even if, you know, you personally profited from it, which of course Drake and Raleigh did. Pirates, on the other hand, were typically not under any kind of contract or obligation by a court. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. From 1560 until her death in 1603, Queen Elizabeth employed a group of privateers to raid, pillage, and rob ships that were acting against English interests. The group of private sailors known as Sea Dogs included famous naval explorers like Sir Francis Drake, who circumnavigated the world, and Sir Walter Riley, who founded the colony of Roanoke and went looking for El Dorado, the city of gold. Reports of the sea dogs and other fantastic tales of naval adventures were cataloged in 16th and 17th century travel diaries, along with the writings of professional travel writers, all of whom sent amazing stories of wild exploits back to England where playwrights like William Shakespeare were ready to include them on stage. Our guest this week, James Seth, is author of Maritime Musicians and Performers of Early Modern English Voyages, as well as the forthcoming book, Shakespeare's Sea Dogs. James joins us today to share the history of Elizabeth's sea dogs, the musical entertainment that would have been available while traveling at sea, and exactly what real-life maritime stories inspired characters from Shakespeare's plays. Dr. James Seth is currently an assistant professor of English at Central Washington University. He teaches courses on Shakespeare, early modern drama, maritime literature and culture. And as a researcher, he has published on topics including early English shipboard performance, Shakespeare and Oceanic folklore, and early modern maritime visual art. James's first book, Maritime Musicians and Performers on Early Modern English Voyages, The Lives of the Seafaring Middle Class, is out now. You can find a copy at the links in today's show notes. Hello, James. Welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing? (laughs) Where did the term sea dogs come from? Did Elizabeth I come up with that term? So we probably think of the term sea dog as like, an old salt or like an older seafarer who's seen a lot of things on the ocean. But actually, so this term was originally meant to describe this elusive mythic creature, which we now know as the seal. 
And this oceanic dog may have times referred to as, you know, referred to dogfish, which was used multiple times in texts like Richard Hacklett's Principal Navigations, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about later in more depth. But more generally, it referred to animals. And in fact, the first usage of it, uh, at least in the English language, appeared in this text from William Philip, the translation of Jan Hugen van Lichtenstein's Discourses in, in, uh, of Voyages into the East and West Indies in 1598. And you asked if Elizabeth came up with this term for her own privateering group, but I don't know for certain because the term really only applied to animals during her lifetime. So Elizabeth actually calls Sir Walter Raleigh silly pug in her letters to him. Uh, this was part of a reply to his poem that he wrote for her called Fortune Hath Taken Away My Love. But the term sea dogs didn't explicitly refer to men, at least in written record, until 1659. So that was like 50, 56 years after Elizabeth's death. And so the first instance actually appears in a travel journal from Daniel Pell called Pelago. And this was translated neither amongst the living nor amongst the dead, which was described by him as a delightful description of all those various things, multitudinous objects found on sea, in sea, on, on, and on land. And it wasn't until 1871 that the term sea dogs explicitly referred to privateers. And so this is kind of the term that we know, like that's attached to figures like Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, and all of the men who sort of worked for Elizabeth. So it wasn't really until the late 19th century that this term is really attached to them. And it may have begun with Edward Dowden's studies in literature from 1789 to 1877, who, which uses the phrase sea dog to refer to Drake's men and not actually Drake himself. So it seems like the term sort of evolved in different texts until it eventually was used to describe Elizabeth's sea dogs by a text from William Wood called Elizabeth's sea dogs in 1918. So we can definitely tell that they wouldn't have used the term sea dogs during Shakespeare's lifetime or during Elizabeth's reign at all to apply to these kinds of privateers. But when we're looking back at them, how do we tell the difference between what we're calling a sea dog and what would be called a pirate? Were were people like Sir Walter Riley and, and the other privateers in service to Queen Elizabeth doing piratey things? Why do we have that association? This is a great question. And so being a sea dog, it really meant that you were sanctioned by Elizabeth to help the English naval efforts against the Spanish. And you were thus a, a privateer. And so these men, you know, which which included uh, Drake and so forth, they were tasked with raiding Spanish ships during the latter 16th century. And so this eventually ended, though, with the Treaty of London in 1604. So if you were a sea dog, if you were called a sea dog, or at least the way that we know it today, you were contracted for this specific task from Elizabeth, even if, you know, you personally profited from it, which of course Drake and Raleigh did. Pirates, on the other hand, were typically not under any kind of contract or obligation by a court. I mean, in fact, they were generally the opposite of that and kind of operated on their own terms. And so, of course, there were pirates that, you know, uh, existed and, and, and plundered at the same time that these sort of more gentleman privateers like Drake and Raleigh, et cetera, were on the sea as well. So really the distinction here is their obligation to court and to sort of a land government, whereas pirates were not generally. 
sea travel and reports of sea creatures were frequent occurrences for the 16th and 17th century. But are there any instances where we see firsthand accounts of sea creatures making their way into Shakespeare plays? I'm I'm curious specifically about things like sea dogs and dogfish. What should we know about the history of those terms and, and what they would mean for the time when they were written? Certainly. And I think that there are many reports of sea creatures being discovered and spotted during Shakespeare's time. Um, These range from whales to sea dogs to hybrid creatures like mermaids and manfish. And there's actually a a quote in uh, Torellus and Cressida from Thersites when he says, when think you of this man and makes me for the general, he's grown a very landfish, languageless, a monster. And I just think the way that he describes a kind of languageless landfish is really fascinating because it kind of reminds me of seeing like a jellyfish on the beach or something. It's kind of an unusual image, but this, you know, there were a lot of ways to describe fish on sea and on, you know, that were sort of appearing on land in sort of this hybrid way. And in fact, mermaid sightings were also prevalent during and shortly after Shakespeare's time. So you have navigators like Captain Richard Woodbourne who sailed to Newfoundland to look for potential English settlements in 1620. And so he claimed to have seen a mermaid with blue streaks instead of hair. And of course, there's multiple references to mermaids in Shakespeare and other contemporaneous texts, such as, you know, Gertrude's description of Ophelia in death, as well as, you know, Adonis's description of Venus luring like the wanton mermaid song. So you, you definitely have um, this sort of attachment to these sort of mythic or wayfish sort of female characters in Shakespeare. But something that I'm looking to explore more in my current project is the similarity in language when Shakespeare's sort of ship toss characters and the historical English seafarers both describe indigenous peoples. And so, for instance, I'm really fascinated by Trinculo's description of Caliban and the Tempest when he says, what have we here, a man or a fish, dead or alive? A fish, he smells like a fish, a very ancient and fish-like smell, a kind of not of the newest poor John, a strange fish. And so the term strange fish as a descriptor of indigenous people, but not able to to see them as people at first, actually happens and and appears in multiple travel journals uh, during this time. And one notably in Hacklett's uh, Principal Navigations, specifically describing Inuit people and what we know today on who resided on what we know today as Baffin Island. And I'm currently exploring how much of the language is shared between travel journals and the language of Shakespeare's plays to do this. And we're going to talk about um, this this text and others earlier, but with regard to texts from Michel de Montaigne, Ania Lumba and Noel Cobb and other scholars have pointed out that Shakespeare wasn't shy about lifting entire passages from certain texts with some minor changes, such as uh, Montaigne's of the cannibals. So there's a section that seems to have been greatly inspired by Gonzalo's vision of a commonwealth with, quote, no riches, poverty, and use of service, nor use of metal corn or wine or oil. So that's something I'm really interested in. It's fascinating to me to think about, we're quite used to mermaids and fantastic creatures of the deep being used in storytelling to add that mythical quality or that fantastic element. And it's really fun to think about how for Shakespeare's lifetime, these were much closer to real creatures and tied to very real events that were being written about, like you say, in some of these travel journals. It really changes how you see them when you come across them in characters like Trinculo and and all of these places where they get mentioned. Now, James writes about two important travel writers whose works were published during Shakespeare's lifetime. 
and I'm going to butcher poor Richard's last name, but I'm going to go with Hacklet. Yes. Did I get (laughs) that right? Okay. You've got it right. (laughs) Yay. So you've got Richard Hacklet and Michelle de Montaigne. And James, tell us how these writings and their accounts of John Rolfe and his daughter Bermuda specifically, how does that intertwine with some of the stories we see in Shakespeare's play Pericles? Pericles is a is a very interesting play. I mean, it's it's very interested in sea travel and shipwrecks, various occupations on the water, close to water, on the shore. There are experienced and novice fishermen, there's pirates, there are prostitutes at seaside brothels. And Shakespeare sort of builds this world that thrives on sea stories. And so much of what's told between people is, you know, what about is about what happens on the sea and abroad. And so as I suggest earlier, you know, the language in Hacklet and de Montaigne suggests that even if Shakespeare didn't actually read the voyage journals, he was familiar with the stories of the people, the ships. He references various uh, historical ships, such as the Tiger in Twelfth Night. Even if he didn't actually read the journals, he was aware of the language of this world, at least as much as it circulated in London. So he may have been familiar with things like you know, Frobisher's journeys to try to find this passage, even if he didn't necessarily read verbatim the account in Hacklet, or he may have been familiar with certain sort of voyages such as John Rolfe. In my book, my first book, I talk about how the worlds of voyaging and theater have always sort of had strong tethers. And it's actually the Tempest that's uh, believed to have inspired John Rolfe's shipwreck on Bermuda while traveling to Virginia in 1609. He lost his his daughter and his his wife and his daughter. He named Bermuda, uh, but he built a ship and sailed to the American mainland. He famously met and married Pocahontas. But her daughter definitely shows affinities to Shakespeare's young sea tossed heroines, Marina and Miranda. And I think that many of the sort of tragic similarities come down to the fact that neither Marina nor Miranda have a relationship with their mother, much like Bermuda Rolf, which didn't who didn't have a relationship with her mother Sarah. And Marina is also a character who laments loss. And this is what shipwrecked characters and people at sea do. I mean, you know, to quote Shylock, ships are but boards, sailors but men. And in fact, we see Marina actually scattering flowers on Lycordia's watery grave during the first time that we see her in this play. And so she has this mixture of different flowers. And it's interesting because, you know, aboard ship, you were dealing with loss at any given moment through, you know, sickness, through people, you know, going overboard, through weather or natural disaster, shipwrecks, etc. Like there were all kinds of, of ways that people would die at sea. And so this was a very common occurrence. But this sort of grave attachment to these young female characters is really interesting to me. And it's also interesting that Marina in Pericles, you know, her name kind of evokes a kind of mermaid figure. And she shares really important parallels with Ophelia, who also has a bouquet of flowers at one point. She's passing it around. But she also is mourning the death of her parents. And she is literally described as a mermaid by Gertrude in her own death. So I just think it's really interesting how Shakespeare you know, perhaps uses Rolf's story to build on the kind of mythology of it. Or to kind of like, even if plays like Hamlet were written before Rolf's journey, like, you even have these associations with young female characters with mermaids that are associated with these sort of tragic occurrences. And this continues with Marina, which was uh, written like close to that time uh, of the shipwreck, if not just slightly before. 
I want to shift gears just a little bit in our journey through maritime adventures here to look a little more closely at specifically some of the sea ventures. In his latest book, Maritime Musicians and Performers on Early Modern English Voyages, James explores the role of performers on board some of these ships that were going on these travels. Now, James, that was really surprising to me to think about performers being an integral part of of sailing. And I am curious, were there sailors whose job it was to provide music on board ship? Yes. Thank you, Cassidy. There were different forms of musicians uh, aboard these early English voyages in the 16th and 17th centuries. There were naval musicians who included trumpeters, drummers, and fife players. There were also civilian performers who played music, who danced, who participated in shipboard rituals and work songs and even dramatic performance. It's really, those instances um, are, I, I think, a little bit more exceptional, um, but certainly you would hear music if you were on board ship. And this included things like the trumpeters who were signaling to other ships or to other passersby. It also included the uh, the drummers who were, you know, either giving signal or were participating in some sort of shipboard ritual. You have, like I said, death was a common occurrence. So you had funeral rites that were occurring. You'd also have things like psalm playing that was occurring with some, with some voyagers like Francis Drake, who ensured that psalm playing and, and religious ritual and religious rites were a common occurrence. And in fact, he wanted these to be very public because when he, Essentially kidnapped or, or uh, <laughs> detained members of like, like ge- uh, Spanish gentlemen during his circumnavigation, he made them watch one of the song performances that he that he gives. I, it's just really fascinating because you have you have string players aboard many of these ships as well who were you know performing what's called you know still music or soft music, and they would be performing at like nice dinners and sort of. I guess, fancier occasions, if you will. And then you have sort of the more utilitarian kinds of musicians who are performing for communicative purposes. And so sometimes musicians would also like be off board the ship and would, would follow many of these uh, travelers and, and voyagers to scout locations. And they would be using their, their trumpeters or their, or their trumpets or their drums or even fifes or anything, whatever they had on hand as communicative devices. So you heard a range of sounds depending on on how many musicians were aboard the ship, how many were contracted, as well as what their roles were. And kind of, uh, there's a sense that they had a prescribed role, but there was also a sense that they could, you know, change that role and, and, and transform it in any way, depending on the kind of danger they were in, what, what needed to happen, what they needed to do with their instruments, et cetera. So what about other kinds of performances besides music? Were there actors doing any plays on board long voyages? <laughs> so other than musicians who were like listed on either the ship's library accounts or the payment accounts as musicians or, or trumpeters, they would be amateurs. <laughs> so they weren't, they weren't hired as actors to entertain uh, at sea, at least not during the time of, uh, you know, the Tudor period or the Jacobean period. But, but you have uh, players essentially who were playing and, and doing different things. So, so, there's several voyages that have potential tethers to the, the the dramatic world, and one that I talk about at great at great length is the uh, third voyage of the East India Company, and they were going to um, Bantam and Sarat, and they were trying to sort of like it was essentially sort of the, the spice trading, etc. But they were going through Sierra Leone, and during one notable stop in 1607, 
they had a performance for a Spanish educated or Port- Portuguese educated dignitary, Lucas Fernandez. And it's very possible that they performed something elaborate and many journals and, and debated pieces of, of historical information sort of tell us that they could have performed Hamlet. And these fragments that we get from various sources, they are tenuous, but they still uh, point us in interesting directions. And we have some sort of, you know, possible um, evidence linking this third voyage to Shakespeare, including a potential connection with Nicholas Ling, who is actually the, the editor, the publisher of the first couple of Hamlet Quartos, who was also a victual supplier for that same voyage, for the third voyage. And he could have been related to, uh, there's actually several Nicholas Lings, so it could have been another person as well, but this seems highly coincidental to me. <laughs> so that connection is there. And you have other sh- other ships. The trades increase. This is on the sixth voyage from the East India Company. There's a, there's a journal from, um, I think, Downton, who explains that they had a play performed. And this was 1610. So this was a few years after that. So playing, that term is very nebulous. And it could encompass all kinds of different kind of entertainment. but there are are fragments of historical text that sort of suggest that there may have been plays performed. So it could have been a bunch of sailors getting together around a copy of this quarto and just making it up as they go or, you know, or anything in between. (laughs) It's totally up in the air. And I feel like if they were going to use a copy of anything, they would probably use quarto one, like the first one, because it's just so sparse, but also I feel like it's a little bit easier to, I mean, the, the language is so much more simplified, but it's it's it feels more utilitarian to me to use if you were going to be at sea. But I, it's still very much up in the air. And there's unless we have a little bit more, I guess, credible evidence <laughs> that nails it down, because one of the key pieces of evidence that links the Hamlet play could have been written by a forger in the 19th century. That's a whole other conversation. But there's I, th- I think there's different ways. Well, how I kind of think about it is that there's this like multiverse of realities. Like they could have performed a play. They could have performed music. They could have just, you know, it could have been a hoax. It, there, there are multiple ways to sort of interpret this particular ministry on the third voyage. <laughs> Absolutely. Now this, um, this third voyage involves, if you're researching Hamlet and performances at sea, this is a pretty famous point in 1607. The ship was called the Red Dragon. And so we will make sure yes. we've, we've <laughs> covered that here on that Shakespeare Life before, and we have some resources we'll put to go with that. So you can explore that further in the show notes for today. Now, James, we are really excited to dive into this further and explore all the options debated as well as concrete for maritime travel and performances and exploring definitely the relationship between sea dogs and seals and other sea creatures. There's just a lot to unpack. What are some of your books and resources you could recommend as a place for us to begin when we want to look into this topic further? Excellent. I think that if you're looking at the particular mystery that I was just describing, um, I would dive into the Third Voyage Journals by Richmond Barbour and his latest, The Loss of the Trades Increase. If you're looking for more uh, information on musicians uh, at sea, I would look at Ian Woodfield's English Musicians in the Age of Exploration, published in 1995. I think you can find it on Internet Archive for free. It's actually a, uh, available that way, but you can also find the text otherwise. I also recommend Allison Games' The Web of Empire. This was really a, a crucial text 
for me for the early part of my my research. Steve Mintz has a lot of great texts, uh, including Shipwreck Modernity and At the Bottom of Shakespeare's Ocean. Dan Brayton's Shakespeare's Ocean was really important. And really everything by Marcus Redeker, including the Many-Headed Hydra, that one is particularly outstanding. And then lastly, if you're interested in, in the uh, nonverbal communication between European and Indigenous American people, I definitely recommend Celine Carrion's Eloquence Embodied. Those are excellent resources for sure. We will link to these as well as James Seth's publications and places you can follow his work. If you are looking to dive into this subject and want a great place to start, those resources will be a good place to begin and we'll place all of them in the show notes for today's episode. Now, James, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Oh gosh, I it took so long to to try to figure this out, but I would probably take my giant Oxford collection of Thomas Middleton. It is huge and it would take a good while to get through. And I would be laughing, ironically, of course, at all the dark humor as I'm slowly wasting away on this desert island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think making sure that your time there is is fulfilling would be the way to go. <laughs> right. So so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, we've talked a lot about Sea Dogs, and that's actually the title of my current book project, Shakespeare's Sea Dogs, which sort of poses the question, how did Shakespeare acquire and bring all of this knowledge of the sea and seafaring to his place? One way that this book sort of approaches that is through the Sea Dog characters, which are mainly in the comedies and the romances. So uh, I talk about different characters like the Boson and Tempest, Antonio and Twelfth Night, protagonists and Pericles, many others. Um, this book investigates how the sea dogs are inspired by the histories and lives of real maritime explorers, as we've been talking about today, but sort of more in depth and making those connections a little bit more, a little bit more in depth, but also a little bit more credible because I'm looking at natural histories, foraging accounts, maps, globes, different sort of materials that were available during this period and kind of linking them to the language and knowledge of Shakespeare's plays, how how the maritime knowledge and oceanic knowledge sort of found their way into Shakespeare's plays and how we, you know, are able to sort of parcel that and see where it comes from and why it's important. I love that sort of tangible history where you've got the maps and the globes and the things you can really get your hands on and tying that in with Mm -hmm. um, Shakespeare and the other history. Fascinating stuff coming from James Seth. Can't wait to read that book. And we'll place links again in the show notes where you can be sure to get your copy of Shakespeare's Sea Dogs. James Seth, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the maritime history of pirates and sea creatures and performances at sea. This has been a really fun conversation and I thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Cassidy. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you'd like to see some of the visual history that coordinates what we're talking about today, some of those records of the maritime visits and some of the travel diaries, as well as pictures of some of the explorers like Sir Walter Riley and Sir Francis Drake, be sure you check out the show notes for today's episode. The show notes are where I pack in all kinds of bonus history visual content, including links to the resources James mentions and places that you can follow his work, check out his book that we talked about, and so much more. It's all completely free and available at the website. So check that out today at Cassidy cash.com slash episode 237. That's cassidycash.com slash EP 237. 
If you're a fan of the show, that Shakespeare Life, and you're just excited to learn about Shakespeare history here with us on the show each week, then you are really going to love our patrons area where there's even more Shakespeare history and special bonuses waiting there for you in our patrons library. We have things like the award-winning three-minute animated version of Romeo and Juliet, along with a three-minute animated version of Hamlet and Othello. There's also exclusive documentary films that were donated to that Shakespeare Life patrons by partnering history organizations and an entire digital library of downloads of history guides, worksheets, sticker kits, and so much more, all of which coordinate with our show and with the life of William Shakespeare. We make this available to patrons because it's our patron support that allows our show to keep going. Not only do we get to produce fantastic history for you here each week, but everything that we offer from the episode to our massively detailed show notes is always completely free anywhere in the world without any commercials. And that's all thanks to listeners like you who support our show by being a patron. If you would like to support our show and help us continue that Shakespeare life while also getting VIP access to our online community, then join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.